You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Spiders make convenient culprits. There's no spider here. I think one of your Venezuelan spiders hitched a ride here. There may be some spiders around here that are very dangerous. Dad, chill out. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Growing up, I liked to play outside and turn over logs and see what was living underneath them. My mom would warn me to watch out for spiders and snakes. Of course, most of the time I just found slugs, worms, grubs, beetles, and such, but occasionally I would find a black widow and recoil in horror. And of course, the black widow was nothing compared to the other spider of nightmares here in Georgia, the brown recluse. Stories about huge, unhealing, necrotic wounds haunted my childhood, and any vaguely brownish spider that shows up in my house still, more often than not, gets smashed before I think to try and actually ID the species. Reflexes are like that. Still, if you read the work of Dr. Rick Vetter, you'll find that the fear of brown recluse spiders far outweighs the actual danger. This doesn't mean they're safe to play with. They're legitimately venomous. But they tend to not bite people. They are as their name implies, reclusive by nature. And if you live in California, that spider you saw is almost certainly not a brown recluse. Check the show notes for a link to Dr. Vetter's research. 
Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today Dr. Karen Stolzo and I interview author Lynn Kelly about how she turned her debilitating fear of spiders around and came to love these fascinating arachnids. If you're afraid of spiders, try and stick with it. I think you'll find Lynn's story very interesting. We do get pretty graphic in our discussion of spider reproduction, and it is quite a spectacle. So if you don't want your kids hearing about spiders and the birds and the bees yet, be aware that this does come up in this episode. Monster Talk. Hello, listener. How would you like to be on Monster Talk? I don't have time to interview everyone, but I'd like to do something interesting for episode 100 of the show, and I'd like your help. Here's all you need to do. One, decide what your favorite monster is. Two, record yourself digitally using this format. My name is blank, and my favorite monster is blank. Obviously, don't use the word blank. Fill in your actual information there. And then three, save that file and email it to me, blake at monstertalk.org. And here's the important part. Put the words episode 100 in the email subject. That's all you have to do. Send me your name and your favorite monster as an audio file and put episode 100 in the subject. Thanks for helping us make episode 100 extra fun. Monster Talk. Hey, this might interest you. Literally, right before I started recording this, I got this uh-huh. package. What's this uh, package? Can you hear that? Let me open yeah, I can. <laughs> what do we got here? <clears throat> Language, Myths, Mysteries, and Magic by Corinne Stolz. Yeah, heard of her before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for buying a copy of my book. You're welcome. I would encourage our listeners to also buy a copy of your book. Now, that's based on me reading the blurbs and other people's reviews, but I, well, I you know, I've read your other work and I've I, um, you know, normally like to give out free copies, but I received so few. This was from an academic publisher, Macmillan. And um, so, really, I've just got my own copy left one I gave to my mum and one I gave to my dad, and that's about it. But uh, because I did thank you in the acknowledgements. Oh, I haven't got that far. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not. Let but, me see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, because, there I am. <laughs> you know, we've talked about various things over the years, and I know you're going to take a look at the Bigfoot chapter and the alien language chapter, and you just didn't really get around to it. I think you were just too busy with things. You know, as a heroin addict, I have a lot of other priorities. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough, then. <laughs> So, yeah, actually, I yeah, what's happened is uh, my day job has been super busy. I'm telling this to the listeners more than you because you already know this. But uh, but it's good busy because I really enjoy my new job. Um, but I also enjoy making Monster Talk, so I'm glad to be back in the saddle, and I appreciate you joining Yeah. Me. Oh, it is nice to be here after quite a break. Anything else you've been working on? Anything else the listeners might want to know about? Um, I've been working on a number of things, but one is actually a novel. It's a totally new thing for me. So, um, it, it's, I, I, but I think the topic will be of interest to our readers, uh, to our readers, to our listeners, but. Yeah. See, uh, you actually just Freudian slipped into what I was talking about the, <laughs> the other yeah. update. <laughs> yeah. Well. I didn't know if you the, wanted to make that public on the, uh, on the show or not. Oh, all that update. Yeah, breeders, right? <laughs> Not readers. <laughs> well, I do have an explanation for that. Yeah, pregnancy brain. I am pregnant. So oh, I'm well, there you go. Now uh, almost at 21 weeks and um, yeah, just um, just still getting over morning sickness, would you believe it? That's supposed to end at the end of the first trimester, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, as far as I can tell, based on my limited experience, uh, 
there's nothing particularly predictable about these things. I, it's my, very individual. I'm yeah, certainly yeah. learning that everyone has their own unique experience. I had one sister who didn't seem to have any issues. I have another sister who was sick through the whole pregnancy. And my wife was all over the place, depending on which pregnancy we're talking about. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not uh, – they don't give out thalidomide anymore, obviously, but I'm on some pretty hefty medication. Uh, I'm not having to take it as frequently as I used to before, but it's actually for cancer patients who are undergoing chemotherapy. So it's hardcore stuff. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of scary. It is, but it's it really helps and it enables me to eat. <laughs> oh, well, it, yeah, that's good. Okay. Yeah, so, yes. Well, I hope it all turns out super awesome. I mean, I know I've kind of been following the progress on Facebook. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we, we know that we're having a little boy. Well, maybe not so little. We've been told that he's uh, in the 98th percentile for size. And yeah. so he's, um, I mean, Matthew's six foot four. I'm 5'10", so it stands to reason that we'll have a... A big boy, but uh, I didn't know just how big. Well, I won't get into the how do you plan to get that out of there, but <laughs> cesarean section. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't get a vote or whatever, but my wife highly recommends cesarean. So, well, I was born by cesarean, and it's it's all going to be planned. We get to choose the day and everything. That is the nice part about it, unless they decide to come early. The the well, you get something- the schedule. So. Something interesting about that, my I was scheduled to be born on the 13th of August and it was going to be Friday the 13th of August uh, and my mother was very concerned about that, very superstitious, so she had the date moved to the 12th on the Thursday instead of the Friday. Well, I, I can tell you, I was born on the 13th and it just ruins your whole life, so... Well, <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, a good friend of mine that I grew up with and went to school with, she was born the day after me, and she was born with a slight paralysis. So oh. that was confirmation bias to my mum that oh, no that, that yeah. could have been me if I'd been born on the Friday. Yeah, I I, I think uh, you know superstitions um, like that. I mean, it's so easy to find things that confirm it, right? I mean, it's so easy so. if you're looking for it. Right, for sure. right, exactly. So yeah, yeah. Monster dog. Dr. Lynn Kelly has had a career teaching math, or, or maths, I should say, being speaking Australian English, science and IT, and she has degrees in electrical engineering, teaching, computing, and education. She's currently a science writer and visiting research fellow at La Trobe University. Lynn is the author of 15 books, including The Skeptic's Guide to the Paranormal, Crocodile, Evolution's Greatest Survivor, and the books that bring us to speak with her today, Spiders, Learning to Love Them, and Spider Woman. These two books tell of her journey from arachnophobia to her total obsession with spiders. So welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So, Lynn, you once had an overwhelming fear of spiders, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. So why did you decide to overcome your arachnophobia and how did you do it? Arachnophobia is an irrational fear. Spiders are not going to hurt you, and we can get into that later. But the <laughs> important thing was that it was out of control. I was being ridiculous about spiders, wrecking, walking out in the bush even at home, And so I decided that an irrational fear can be cured with knowledge. Knowledge is your greatest defence against silly stuff. So I started studying spiders, in particular the little tiny guys on the outside of the window. I let them make their webs and I watched them from inside Mm -hmm. and gave them names, itsy and tiny and that. 
and got to know them as individuals and they weren't scary at all, especially when they became predictable. I think that's the big problem with spiders is they seem to be so in, unpredictable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pay to have arachnophobia in Australia, does it? No, we are rather <laughs> overloaded with the critters. Yeah. <laughs> are, are they pervasive or is there just a lot of species or why, why do you say that? It's more the number. Uh, they are everywhere. You are going to have huntsmen. Now, do I call them huntsmen, the big guys, or in America, giant crab spiders or rain spiders? What's the common name? Wow. I, so I've heard huntsmen before. These are spiders, like in America, when I think of huntsmen, I'm thinking about like a funnel web or some kind of a spider. It doesn't build a web per se. That's right. They don't build a web. They, yeah. They're big. Yeah, and I think they get up to about 11 inches or something crazy, and you find them on your clothing and in your boots. Really? Inches. So these are like almost tarantula size. Yeah, they're often called tarantulas, but they're completely different. Um, There's really two sorts. I've got sidetracked completely, but such is life. There's two sorts of spiders, two groups, the moderns and the primitives. So tarantulas are the ones that rear up because their fangs point down. So you've got tarantulas and and what we call funnel webs, not what you call funnel webs. And... Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. Uh, that are the, the more primitive spiders and rear up, so they're the ones they can make look scary, uh, including the Sydney funnel web, which is supposed to be really deadly and all that. Huntsmen and all the rest have their fangs pointing together. And they're called modern spiders and they don't rear up. So the huntsmen I'm talking about, or crab spiders or rain spiders, tend to just appear. We have a lot of them and in summer they will just appear on a wall which was previously blank and even worse, a minute later they're gone again and you have no idea where. (laughs) They walk sideways and not as consistently and they also seem to be aware of you mainly because they are. Those They're totally and utterly harmless but Mm. those things make them seem much more frightening than the American tarantula, which is a really docile creature, bigger and thicker and heavier, but very docile. So once I was through my arachnophobia or believed that was the case, I came to America and I held an American tarantula and it was absolutely beautiful. But I'd probably do that more willingly than a huntsman because the tarantulas move very slowly, whereas huntsmen are so unpredictable and can be very fast. So fast and unpredictable is scary. So aren't there those pretty tarantulas too with the little pink toes? There are. The tarantulas are absolutely gorgeous and that's one of the things I did in order to cure the fear was started looking at the abdomens and the actual fur and spiders are absolutely beautiful. And once you start looking at the little pink toes with claws on the end and that, uh, they are absolutely beautiful. But you've got to get past that, oh, God, it's got eight legs and it's moving and it's scary and hairy. And the moment you can overcome that instant reaction, and I still have it, but I stop myself instantly now and start looking at the beauty of their actual structure and construction and knowing how they're going to behave. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So it, you feel like it's the uh, it's like that type one, type two part of your brain that you know there's the fast part that just instantly gives you a reaction 
And then you yep. have to kind of talk yourself down and go, well, no, 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 no. That's not, I'm not in any risk here, right? But Yeah, the talking down can become a habit, though, that is so fast that I see a tarantula and within less than a second I've converted my brain, my mindset. Wow. So can you talk about the fear a little bit? I mean, because we talk about monsters in the show, and some people might think uh, spiders don't really count. But uh, for some people, it, they clearly do, and uh, for, especially oh, yes. if you're being gripped with this. This is not just a casual kind of fear, right? No, no. It's not just, oh, I don't like them. It becomes a real fear. I could see them everywhere, even when they weren't, if I go went walking anywhere, I could feel the webs on my face and therefore a spider had definitely fallen off the web. By the way, if you walk into a web, the spider's very unlikely to fall on you. They're not that stupid. They'll drop to the ground. But I could feel them. I was just aware of them everywhere and it was just really interfering with my life. So they were monsters. They'd grown bigger and in my case I had a lot of nightmares, Um, but not Totally nightmares, you know, sleep paralysis. Have you talked about that on the show? Oh, yes. yes, yeah. So they were crossing my bed towards me at night and I'd wake up screaming and wake the family and so on. That still happens but it doesn't scare me anymore. So it was the fear became irrational, the spiders became bigger and hairier and their relationship to reality then had diminished to a stupid degree. So what I had to do was bring them back into the real world. There's many popular fears about spiders, uh, like that people swallow a certain number of spiders per year or that spiders can get under your skin and lay eggs, uh, and then things like uh, spiders which cause necrotic lesions. Um, do you want to talk about some of these things and which are true and which are not and why there might be so many urban legends about spiders? Absolutely. We'll get to necrotic lesions in a moment because that's a more important one. But the swallow eight spiders a year came from um, somebody making up things uh, in an online forum uh, that convinced people that they would believe things just because they were online. We don't swallow eight spiders. Spiders are not going to go into a moist environment like a mouth. Um, So that's unlikely. In fact, there's nothing to do it. Spiders don't burrow under human skin and lay eggs. They can't and they wouldn't. It's completely the wrong environment, much too moist and much too warm for them. There's the other famous one that people bring back cactus from Mexico with a spider and the bursts out. That's total rubbish too. They don't nest in plants. They nest, uh, egg sacs are normally made out of silk and put somewhere secure. The interesting one that has some rational basis is the necrotic lesions. That's the spider's bitten and the wound becomes all huge and pussy and horrible and lasts for months, if not years. Now, this has become huge in Australia with what we call the white-tailed spider, so named because it has a little white bottom. But it's total rubbish. There's no evidence here of white-tailed spiders causing those lesions. But the American brown recluse spider does, in rare cases, where there's somebody allergic to it, does cause those sort of wounds. 
However, the big fear is in California. California people were telling me all sorts of stories, just like our whitetail ones, of somebody they knew who had got one of these lesions. Yeah, There are no brown recluse spiders, according to your arachnologists in California. In Texas, I saw them everywhere. And Texans are not anywhere near as scared of them because they are called brown recluse because they're extremely reclusive. So, yes, they can bite and in some cases they can cause those horrible sores, but it's very rare and the rest of the world has picked up on the fear in order to make it much more exciting. Yeah, I actually uh, participated in a study that was done by uh, Dr. Rick Vetter. Oh, good. And, the uh, authority. Yeah, and <laughs> he... he He's made a very strong case that that while they are dangerous, they're way, way, way overreported and over overfeared. <laughs> well, like here, um, you know, you hear people that won't come to Australia because of our deadly spiders. And what I love doing in uh, is telling the Brits, in particular, that our most deadly animal is the introduced British honeybee. It causes more deaths per year than any spider or any of our native animals, including sharks. Uh, spiders haven't killed anyone here for 40 years. The redback hasn't killed anyone for 50 years. The Sydney funnel web hasn't for about 40 years now. And in all recorded time, there are 23 recorded deaths to the uh, Sydney funnel web. That That's is so not cute. a wildly deadly creature compared to honeybees with allergic reactions. And humans. I have to add too, this is just in my own experience, but I've always got people, as soon as they find out here in the States that I'm from Australia, they'll immediately raise spiders and snakes and how petrified they yes. are of them. And, and that's why they'd never go to Australia. But I have to, to say that just in my experience, I've encountered more venomous spiders here than I've ever seen in Australia. In fact, uh, I, I live in Denver and I've seen about half a dozen black widows just over the few years that I've been here and uh, have come into, had close encounters with them and I uh, had to keep my cat away from them and uh, I've seen many more than I ever did redbacks in Australia. Redbacks are very reclusive. I live in Castlemaine in Victoria, which is considered the redback capital of the world, uh, and we have tons of them. I could go out and find you 50 now. But they have been taken off. They do not even use anti-venom now for redback bites because redbacks and black widows, the American, sometimes they're considered the same species. At the moment they've been separated, but essentially um, biologically they're the same. Uh, unless you're a child or ill or weak or elderly, the chance of the venom actually killing you is close to zero. Mind you, it's mighty painful, um, but they're not deadly. Now, in America, you have bears and things. That's we what I see. Like That's that my here. response, alligators and bears and big cats. Yeah, we do have <laughs> crocodiles. And McDonald's. And yeah, very true. <laughs> Crocodiles up north, we don't have them down here. Crocodiles up north do take the odd drunk tourist, but as long as you don't go swimming in crocodile-infested rivers, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and still it doesn't come anywhere close to the honeybee. And you stay away from the drop bears as well. Got to remind <laughs> yeah. that. If you want to put <laughs> drop bears out there, have fun. <laughs> this <laughs> is a show about monsters. <laughs> koalas do pee on people and huh. they're – 
their pedal is very strong smelling. So it depends on your definition of a monster. But their fear reaction and defense reaction is to spray piddle everywhere. Now you're and in trouble. They've been covered on it, <laughs> covered in it, in the past, and it's awful. Like a skunk. <laughs> wow. Yes, except it's got an accurate ability to spray. I don't know how good skunks are <laughs> at spraying because the ca- the koala's above you and sort of sprays everything. So you don't mind you. It's very rare that they do that. They can be pretty scary, though. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I. I used to go to the University of New England and we had them on campus in the trees and when you'd walk through the darkness at night, uh, they'd growl at you. And Oh, yes. <laughs> Our possums and koalas do have mm-hmm. quite interesting growls and one of our owls has a call that really scares me completely because it sounds like a woman screaming and being murdered. But there are bird calls everywhere that um, are, are fearful. Oh, yeah. People can make fear out of a lot of things. And that's why I go back to my original statement, knowledge is the cure for irrational fears. Mm -hmm. I used to have a very strong, and I guess it's irrational, fear of ghosts. Uh, And over my life, as I've learned more and more about that whole phenomena and come to my own skeptical conclusions about their existence, um, I've sort of... Uh, a side effect of that has been that I don't have that fear I used to have because I always felt like uh, if it was something real in the house, you know, I could fight it. But, oh, ghosts, they can walk through walls. How can you combat that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, But, it, yeah, not but really rational. Ghosts have never hurt anyone. I want to meet one and have a chat. Can well, you that imagine? would be wonderful. Us yeah. too. <laughs> they don't talk the same to Same with aliens. So. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to meet an alien. <laughs> It would be grand. Uh. Well, I guess we were talking about uh, some venomous spiders. So my question is, are all spiders venomous? Right. Good idea to get clear venomous and poisonous. Mm -hmm. Venomous meaning they can inject a venom into you. Technically, all spiders are venomous. That's how they kill kill prey. There is one family, the Euloboridae, um, and I'm staring at one on my window right at this moment who don't use venom, but they're tiny and nobody ever notices them anyway. But all the rest, yes, they use venom. As to whether that venom is of any danger to humans, in 99.9% of cases, no. Spiders poisonous to eat, no. They are a food source, the tarantulas, in many traditional cultures. But the big myth is the daddy long legs or cellar spiders. I think you call them cellar spiders there, and it's confusing the name Daddy Longlegs. I've heard that here before. Yeah. In the American Southeast, where I live, we we talk about Daddy Longlegs. We're talking about harvestmen, which are not real spiders. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And here, when we talk about Daddy Longlegs, we're talking about the true spiders, which you call cellar spiders. And they are the most interesting spiders to keep around. So the difference is that Daddy Longlegs spiders have two body segments. All spiders have two body segments with the legs coming from the front segment. When anyone draws them, they always stick their legs on the abdomen and make them short, and then they don't look like proper spiders. Anyway, and harvestmen have only one body segment and don't build a web. The ones I saw in Texas were so much bigger than anything I've seen before. Is it true that everything in Texas is bigger? Mm. Yeah, many things many are. Things, yeah, it seems possibly. <laughs> I love Texas. So, anyway, to get back to cellar spiders or daddy long legs, there's a myth out that they are more deadly than any other spider. 
their venom but they can't pierce the skin. Now, I know in Mythbusters they did a segment on this. They can pierce the skin. They don't tend to. They're an incredibly docile um, spider unless you happen to be prey. And um, their venom's never been tested. But the myth came about because one of the favourite foods of daddy longlegs spiders, cellar spiders, is redbacks, other spiders, including redbacks and uh, black widows. And because they can kill redbacks and black widows and black widows can kill us, therefore the logic went, uh, daddy longlegs must be able to kill us even better. It's biological rubbish um, (laughs) and not true, but that's where it came from and, no, it's a myth. But if you get them in the house, keep them and start watching them using a torch day or night uh, because when the female has egg sac, you can see the individual eggs with the naked eye. The males come along and they twang the web at each other. That's how they can communicate because most spiders, other than the hunters, are pretty well close to blind. They get all their senses through touch, through webs, through hairs and so on. And they twang away at each other and come and go and so on. And then the female has the egg sac and you can watch them hatch and everything. They're just great spiders to have around and watch uh, and especially when they bail up prey too. They're very elegant the way they use those legs. So everybody keep your daddy long legs. Aren't they also responsible for uh, most of the cobwebs in my basement? Yeah. Aren't they gorgeous? Yeah. <laughs> It, it's it all the like mindset. It, if I clean them up, they just come right back. It's amazing. Oh, that's a great piece of trivia, though. I love etymology, and I, I actually bothered to look it up the other day. Why do we call them cobwebs? Because mm-hmm. cob means spider. I thought that well, duh, right? Oh, but, right. Yeah. <laughs> There's, that's the other really interesting thing is silk, and I could waffle on for hours about silk. You know, it's incredibly strong. Birds pinch it all the time for their nests horrible little creatures, birds, uh, because it's impervious to water, it's flexible, it's soft, it's everything. But there's a range of different types, but cobwebs are not sticky, they're woolly, and that's why they gather dirt and everything. And the spider, you can tell whether it's an active cobweb by whether there's anything shiny because that'll have been done within the last 24 hours, whereas the orb weavers with their great big circular webs or even little circular webs, they use sticky type of silk the technology and an orb web will use six different types of silk um, material we can't produce with all our engineering skills and they do it at room temperature all the time it's incredible stuff they've taken uh, genes uh, to produce uh, spider web and put it into goats yeah and uh, they're still they're still having trouble actually producing the silk but it is possible to extract spider silk from the um, goat's milk, which I, th- I think is it's a really interesting field of uh, investigation because as a material, it's a fantastically strong and flexible material, but it's really hard to harvest because it's not like a silkworm. With a silkworm, you know, you, you get one, essentially you get one long strand that just needs to be unwound that forms the cocoon, right? Uh, but with spider silk, there's really no way to harvest it to make it useful. They did harvest golden orb weaver silk, and at the National Museum, uh, Natural History Museum in New York, they have material made out of it that is absolutely spectacular. But they use something like a million spiders. The thing is, spiders don't produce 
single long strand except their drop lines when they're jumping or going somewhere. Uh, even so, it's not going to be that long because they make a web or something out of it. So they're doing it constantly in short spurts. So when they do an orb web, they're fantastic to watch because they do each little strand, they wiggle their little bottoms as they tension it. Because if you think of the physics of an orb web with a spider in the middle, in order to maintain that, um, the top has to be tensioned much tighter than the bottom half. And so they tension it differently right round. And I could go on and on. Incredible creatures. You've got a chart of this in Spider-Woman too, don't you, of how the webs are made? Yes, and in the Spider's book, yes, on how they go about making it. Because a lot of people don't know how they get that first thread out, but they put their little bottoms in the air. Um, terrible to talk about little bottoms, but who cares? <laughs> um, and let out a little bit of silk which catches the breeze and it only needs the slightest amount of breeze until it catches on another um, object bush or something across the open path. And then they go back and forth and back and forth and strengthen that and then they start the complete web. So they also do the same thing. One of the best sights of my life is a whole lot of little wolf spiders sticking their tiny, tiny little bottoms in the air and taking off because that's how they get away from each other after their first instar, first shed of skin. Because if they all stay together, then you end up with sibling stew for dinner because these are carnivores and anything about their size that moves is technically dinner. So they all take off and of those, 99.9% will not survive that day. They'll be eaten or they'll land in water or something. Any spider you see that has reached maturity is one hell of a survivor. Talking about uh, carnivores and I guess that kind of leads to the idea of uh, cannibalism, spiders and cannibalism. And I think a lot of us have heard of the sexual cannibalism of spiders, that female spiders eat their mates after sex. But in your book, you say that it's only just a few species of spiders that eat their mates. Yes, it is only a few species. I've watched um, male and female spiders cohabiting because I get to know my individuals outside and watch them with a torch each night and males and females cohabiting for weeks. Uh, But the best-known example is the Black Widow. That's why she's named that way and our red back, but we'll stick to the term Black Widow. And the male, who is much smaller, actually somersaults into her fangs at the end of mating. And the reason being thought to optimise the chance of him being the one that leads to offspring. Uh, As a food source, he's not really that great, he's too small. The same with a couple of the large orb weavers, including uh, the one you call Nephila, um, golden orb weavers, and I've seen lots of those in America. They also, the male is small and will be eaten afterwards. And again, and he'll often leave his sexual organs, well, not deliberately or personally, his sexual organs will remain embedded in the female's sexual um genitalia in order to stop other males um, having sex with her, the eggs are fertilised when she decides to lay them. They're they're not fertilised at the time of of intercourse. Now, a male spider is heading off to have sex with a carnivore, right, who is going to possibly try and eat him if he hasn't got his signals right and tell her that he's actually a male spider trying to have sex, not dinner. So what male spiders do is they masturbate in advance 
on a what's called a sperm web, deliver all the sperm, collect it in their, the little um, organs on the end of their palps. Spiders actually have ten legs, um, eight hmm. of the normal ones, and then a, a smaller pair of appendages, whether their legs or not is debatable, on the front. So you can tell a male spider if he's got little boxing gloves on those front palps, petty palps, whatever you want to call them, then he's done his masturbation bit, collected his sperm and churns off to find a female so he doesn't have to waste time on that sort of stuff when he's got to concentrate on getting his signals right and staying alive. So you can pick male spiders by their little boxing gloves, in which case he's not interested in you, he's interested only in sex. Well, that, that seems like it would cover a lot of performance anxiety issues, you know, because <laughs> you, you've got to get your dance just right. And if, you, if you're thinking Absolutely. about that, then maybe you can't do the rest of your tricks. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. That, that actually seems pretty clever. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I think it's <laughs> quite sensible. So, <laughs> uh, spider fragility. Uh, spiders can die if they're dropped. They, they're affected yep. by the sun, by heat. Uh, and a lot of people squish them. Uh, that's the kind of things that kill them. But are they really fragile? Are they strong? Or like, how, how do they fare? I mean, I know, obviously, if they're breeding thousands and thousands, then they must have a lot of predators at the very early stages. But, you know, how do they fare otherwise? They've got lots of predators. Obviously, they're right down the food chain. But um, they can dehydrate very, very easily and desiccate. And um, spiders have hydraulic muscle systems. So that's why when you've got your dead spider, its little legs are all pulled in because without hydraulics, um, the muscles have ceased to work. They can dehydrate. Um, and dropping, that's why they always have a drop line, which they drop some silk when they move or drop because if they hit the, a hard surface, they're likely to die because they're skeletons on the outside. When I first held a tarantula in Texas, oh, I'm in love with Texas, uh, Jen Burge, the tarantula owner that Bordova had, had her hands very carefully under mine and she wasn't 
slightest bit concerned about me. The concern was, of course, that I'd revert to arachnophobia. She was concerned about her tarantula because if I dropped him even that short distance, we weren't, you know, um, maybe a foot or so above the carpet, it could have killed him. Wow. And Mm. uh, so she had her hands very carefully under mine. I didn't drop him. He was absolutely gorgeous. But they can die quite easily, and most do. Otherwise, we would be knee-deep in spiders. My my understanding is the spiders drink their victims, that they poison them and then slurp out their juices. But uh, are they able to just drink water as well? And is that where they get their hydration is from their prey, or how does that work? Yes, they... When they inject their venom, it includes digestive juices. So they just digest externally. You actually drink your food too. You just digest it internally. They digest it externally and slurp up the soup. But they do drink water and I've watched, this is the way to make yourself a nutcase at any party, we can get some extremely hot days, which of course you can too, and I go out and water my spiders and lightly spray and then I watch them come up, different species come up and get those drops of water. So I was late to a party one night and sort of said um, I'm late because I had to water all my spiders in the heat and people all moved to the other side of the room for some reason. (laughs) Do you actually, you spritz the web or how do you do that? I just lightly spray on the web if they're a web builder. the wolf spiders, the ones I had a lot of at that stage, out in the garden, I don't keep them inside, uh, had burrows and they also had egg sacs and they covered their burrows in silk, which they do to try and stop dehydration. Spy- uh, burrowing spiders do this all over the world. If it's go- it looks like dehydration, they'll cover their burrows in a silk to try and keep the moisture in. So I'd spray onto that silk and then a little pair of fangs would appear up on the silk and collect the water. It's really cute. And what about molting with spiders too? That can be very dangerous for them, can't it? Exactly. Yes. With molting, they have to shed their skin. They can't grow otherwise because their skeleton is on the outside. When they molt, at that moment, they are absolutely soft. When that skin comes off, they are totally and utterly defenceless. Their fangs are soft and there's nothing they can do. If anything that even tiny comes near them, that's it. And I've watched quite a lot of molting now they also if they get limbs stuck in the skin that'll kill them Mm. and dehydration will kill them in molting i that i've watched a good proportion 10 percent or so don't make it through the molt which is really upsetting when you've got to know the spider personally with their limbs though one thing they can do is uh drop a limb like some little lizards can drop tails if a limb's caught by a predator, they will close the valve one segment out from their body and drop that limb off. So if you start checking your spiders out, you'll find a good proportion have only seven or six legs because they've done that. One I had here, a huntsman I had here for about six months, uh, only had four legs and all on one side, which looked really weird and he walked quite weird. I knew it was a male because he eventually got his little palps and his little boxing gloves. Uh, But he continued to live for about six months. A a mature spider won't regenerate those legs. And if they're still going to molt more, 
they'll regenerate so the next time they'll be sort of wimpy little versions and the following time they'll be possibly back to normal. But if it's an adult, they go without. Wow. Yeah, they're incredible creatures. You should just get to know individuals around your place, good, strong torch, entertainment free all the time. Golden orb are very big and stay on the web during the day. So there's two sorts, the nephila and the black and yellow spiders, agaiope. Garden spiders are the ones that do their orb webs and then disappear at night, often taking down that web at night and reappear. So they'll only be out on the web during the night. Um, Charlotte from Charlotte's Web is a garden orb weaver. Guyope, your black and yellow striped spider, what we call St Andrew's cross spider because of that way of holding their legs. So you've got three main groups of big orb weavers, the um, agaiope or the what you call black and yellow stripe, but there's other versions of it um, who eat their mates too. The golden orb weaver, which holds its legs separate but is out on the web during the day and in the sun the web is gold. And the garden, which are much thicker set and uh, will leave the web during the day and go off and hide nearby. So I think you're saying agaiope, is that right? A-R-G-I-O-P-E. I don't know. It's pronounced all sorts of different ways, but in America I kept hearing people say agaiope. They're gorgeous and totally and utterly harmless. Yeah, they, 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 they make beautiful webs. And uh, yeah. my kids and I have a good bit of fun in the summertime. If we get one around the front of the house, we'll throw insects into the web. Uh, to feed yeah. it. So they seem to enjoy that. So we like to watch and them. And the flexibility of the web. When that insect lands, if that web wasn't flexible, the insect would just go straight through because silk is so light. Yeah, it's like a trampoline. With, with so fle- yeah, like a trampoline, so flexible. It's amazing to watch. Absolutely extraordinary. It really so, is. <laughs> what's it like for a spider lover to be married to a bird lover? Oh, right. It's nearly cost us our marriage. Birds, once you start loving spiders, become the horrible monsters of the world, especially those awful little tiny wrens, you know, horrible, ugly little things. <laughs> My favourite spiders are what we call black house spiders, what you call funnel webs. We have them in this side of Australia all over the windows. In California, you've got the little cousins of them imported from us and they build little tiny, little funnelly webs all over the windows and I'd had them there for ages and watching from inside the little wrens would sort of sit on the veranda line up and then straight in with deadly accuracy and take off my squiggly wiggly squirming spiders Uh so one day our daughter bought my husband a little statue of a blue wren very cute put it inside and one of my spiders came in one of the babies made a nest on it and covered the whole thing with web and (laughs) That's called revenge. Aren't there spiders in Australia big enough to catch small birds? There are sort of all. You're back to your golden orb weavers and so on. Their web is strong enough to do so. A bird is not a preferred prey. It's much too big for them. So a tiny little bird or a tiny little snake or something can get caught in that web because it's so strong and the spider will eventually have to attack it or um, sometimes cuts the web off to get rid of them. But 
Yes, they do occasionally catch birds. As to whether that's their intended prey, no, absolutely no, no. not. But and, and fish too, right? Some 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 spiders catch fish. Oh yes, there's this one spider that lives underwater all its life, uh, builds its its web underwater, and just comes up to get pocket uh, air and fills its little bell. Mates underwater. There's others that go out and do the walking on water trick and go out and fish, um, Dolomedes. Look, they're the most extraordinary variety. Once you start stopping and watching them, it's amazing what you'll see, and it's all free. <laughs> Humans use the golden orb web um, and other orb webs for fishing. Indigenous tribes, uh, especially in um, Australia and New Zealand, uh, New Guinea, collect the webs and use them for fishing because a, a collection of it is very, very strong. They also always use them to cover burns and so on because they don't rot or anything. So it in the before bandages and things, spider web is very good for covering burns. Do you know how long ago spiders developed in, in history, like evolutionarily speaking? Way, way back, the primitive form, the ones that rear like the our funnel webs, uh, the tarantulas and so on. Uh, you've asked me for a figure that I can't remember, but you are going back millions and millions of years. Yeah, they're one of the very – it's in the book. Yeah. They're one of the very <laughs> early animals that have been preserved in um, – what's the yellow stuff? The Amber, preserves. Amber. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Oh, dear. I don't know what happened to my brain. It's being upside down. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then you have them evolving and the modern ones emerge that have their fangs going together. And there was this idea until not that long ago that the primitive, then you got the woolly web ones, the cobwebs, and then you got the most advanced, the orb weavers with their sticky webs. And the one thing that upset them was that when I was talking about before, the Euloborids, Euloboridae family, because these little spiders build orb webs out of cobweb, out of cribblet web, and that messes up the whole theory. Wait, they so, recycle? Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, but they don't do a sticky web, but they do it in an orb shape. Huh. And that's really confusing. So evol- a spider evolution is uh, very much a, a study area of interest but they haven't classified all the species yet. At the moment, they've got about 40,000 species. Uh, so in Europe, they're pretty well all classified. But one of our German arachnologists here, Barbara Bear, moved to Australia because in Europe she's unlikely to name a new spider. Here she does it every day. They estimate that there's about 30% of our spiders, and they do that on what percentage they've named out of what percentage they've collected. So I went down to the bowels of the museum in Western Australia um, where they're classifying spiders and there are just rows upon rows upon rows of jars of dead spiders all waiting to have their genitalia inspected um, for classification because that's one of the things you have to do. And Mark Harvey, the arachnologist there, said he spends his entire life staring at genitalia. That's his job. We've all had that dream. (laughs) Until they are classified, it's 
very hard to get the big picture because so little's known about them. Well, so can we talk a little bit more about um, how you had to overcome your fear of spiders? Was it strictly knowledge, or did you do any of the like? Uh, I don't remember what they call it, but the the aversion therapy, aversion the therapy, the the direct exposure to the spiders. How does that work? Or- no, I was too scared to do that. That they would put a spider on me, and that I would just freak out totally. And so I didn't go to those, although I know that some of those programs are very effective. But because I was too scared of that, I just started with the little ones on the other side of the window and watching them and getting to know and discovering that they were much more scared of me than I was of them, if that's possible, because when I finally got the nerve to go outside and go near the web, they could detect me and would disappear very quickly. And that's what became really interesting and this is the black house, but it works with any of the funnel weavers and that, is how close can you get before they detect you and do a disappearing act. So you have to learn how to sneak up on spiders. The burrowers are the same. And different ones will behave differently. And um, David Attenborough made a comment about life in the undergrowth and making it that they had six individuals of the same species, and they happened to be a black house, And the photographer will say, we'll use number four, that one's much more easy, much more confident, and that each of those six had different personalities and different reactions reliably. And I found that I had about 100 of these right around the house on every window. We had every window was laced um, and covered in lace. And some of them, my favourite, Legless, who was had one leg less than she should have, she didn't wasn't rid of all of them, she, I could get... (laughs) Wasn't drunk. <laughs> Not no, named after I the could, elf, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I could get quite close to her reliably and photograph her and talk to her and all the rest. She never answered back though. But others, I could be two or three metres away and they will detect the movement in the air through their webs and through their um, hairs, which are incredibly uh, sensitive, and they'd be gone. So they were different individuals. Talking about this legless idea, though, one horrible scientist did an experiment where he actually managed to get the spider to drop all eight legs. By grabbing each leg, the spider will drop it. So he had a spider with no legs, which he hand-fed until the next molt, where it got sort of wimpy legs back in the final molt. It got its legs back again. But don't do this at home, please. That reminds me of the the famous uh, flea study. Where they, they the the scientist was studying the fleas. I'm sure you've heard this. Where he he same idea. He he pulled off one leg of a flea and said jump, and the flea jumps. He does this again and then says jump, and the flea jumps. He keeps doing this until he's gotten down to the last leg and he sees jump, and he, the flea jumps. And he pulls off the last leg and says jump, and the flea does not jump. And he puts in his notes: after removal of all six legs, flea becomes deaf. That's. <laughs> I'm not going to include that in the show, but that's... Oh, sure. (laughs) Yes, please. Uh, Well, I'm curious now, what's the average lifespan uh, of a spider? Very interesting. The moderns, um, which is most of them, one to two years, depending. So your big orb weavers that we were talking about, Agiope nephila, the golden orbs, and the garden spiders, less than a year. Once they do their egg sac, they tend to die. 
-hmm. Other moderns like the um, funnel webs and so on uh, can live up to two years. The primitives, however, there's one in captivity in Western Australia who is now 32 years old. Uh, That's um, one of our... um, Oh, trapdoor spiders. So I didn't include trapdoors, which I should have because you've got lots of them over there in uh, the primitive spiders. So there's a trapdoor that's now 32. So they can live much, much, much longer. Why are they called trapdoors? Because some of them put little doors on their burrows so you won't see them. They'll be absolutely everywhere. So the local ones here... Uh, have little trapdoors and I can't find them. The only reason I know they're here is that I occasionally see the males wandering um, at breeding season. But some of them, the ones I had that are in the book, the Melbourne trapdoors don't put a cover on their burrows. So I had little um, white knives marking out all the burrows I'd found, which just around the house, you know, within 100 metres of the house or 50 metres of the house, I had 300 burrows marked out. And people come to the house and say, what are all the little white plastic knives? Oh, they're on my trapdoor burrows, spiders. And <laughs> um, that sort of upset a lot of people. Oh, you seem reason. to make a lot of enemies. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in fact, as the vast majority of my friends tend to be sceptical scientific types, they would just immediately start asking questions, even yeah. if they were scared. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we get back to knowledge is a cure for fear. Mm-hmm. Irrational fear. We're actually going to be doing an episode on fear, I believe, as well, uh, pretty soon. I've got some neurology context I'm trying to get in to kind of talk about that as an emotion because it's not just people that fear things. And so, oh, yeah, no, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, but uh, Karen, the, the trapdoor spiders, I don't know if you, if you get a chance to see some footage of this, it's really, really neat to watch them in because I guess they're, they have a very sensitive ability to, to tell when prey is walking by and they just hop out and grab the prey and bite it and pull it in. It's really neat. Yeah, they put silk lines outside the burrow to detect it. Wow. And then they're inside and can feel any movement on those silk lines, but also on on the earth itself. They often um, will put all beautiful arrangements of leaves and sticks and things uh, to detect prey going past. And it is amazing how fast they move. So it sounds like they're really not interested in biting us. Well, for humans anyway, they're more keen to Getting get away to from us. you would be exceedingly difficult. You'd have to actually pick it up and hold it. And the our mouse spider, you may have heard of them, Karen, mm-hmm. is its venom is five times more deadly than the Sydney funnel web. But no recorded deaths ever because if they ever if you ever can manage to get one to bite they dry bite, they won't release venom. So it might hurt, but the moment the spider's off, that's it. Because they're not going to waste venom on you, you are not prey. So it's very difficult to get bitten and killed, which is why with the Sydney Funnel Web, there's only 23 recorded deaths ever. Yeah, well, Matthew's been bitten by three different black widows in the past. Really? Yes, and so he's survived. He's got a little scar on one finger. 
though. But, They're supposed uh, to be very painful, though. Yes, I think it was more painful than dangerous for him. But when he was a boy, I think he wanted to become Spider-Man and so he <laughs> was capturing spiders ah. and getting them to bite him. And Did he microwave them first? Did he radioactive? Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe today he would, but, uh, That was yeah. a joke. <laughs> Do not email me. I, I know how microwaves work. Okay. And you married <laughs> this man, Karen? Yes, well, yeah, I mean, you and, and him, are, he's really keen to meet you someday and to talk about all of his spider stories. And, of course, he sends you pictures of spiders that he photographs, doesn't he? Yes, <laughs> wonderful. I love I get these from people all over the world and I absolutely love them. Spiders have eight eyes and they seem to use Not their, all of them. Well, some, <laughs> some spiders have eight eyes. <laughs> yes, daddy long legs don't. Your cell uh-huh. spiders have six. So spiders have several <laughs> eyes. And, <laughs> and they, they use their webs or can use their webs as an additional way to sense their environment. But do they, uh, do they have a sense of smell? Do they use chemical mm-hmm. smell signature type things like pheromones? It's interesting. I would actually reverse what you just said. Some spiders use sight. The vast majority only use sight for sort of up and down and light and dark and shade. Oh, wow. The hunting spiders like the huntsman and the little jumping spiders who are the best little guys of all, we'll get back to them in a moment, they use sight. The vast majority use a sense of touch. That's why they have the hairs, in particular those spiky ones, are unbelievably sensitive. So they'll either use the web as an extension of their sense of touch or ripples through the air or whatever. As for smell, technically they don't have noses or anything, but on the end of their feet, under a microscope, spider feet are absolutely extraordinary. They have huge numbers of hairs that are chemical sensitive. So are the rest of their hairs, but especially on their feet. And they'll detect um, chemicals that way. When Jen Burge gave me the tarantula to hold, she warned me not to use hand lotion in advance because she'd done the same with somebody else who just put hand lotion on the hand. She put the spider on their hand and it immediately plonked its body down and all eight legs in the air. It didn't like the hand lotion. (laughs) So, yes, they can certainly detect those, but their sense of touch is by far their most advanced sense and the one on which they depend most. Uh, No hearing unless you consider the ability to detect waves in the air as hearing, in which case they can hear through their hairs as well. Fascinating. Quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder how good spider sense really is for Spider-Man now. <laughs> well, Maybe he does have helped a bit. Yes. <laughs> Don't use him as an educational tool on spider biology. No, maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mentioned jumping spiders. These are the intellectual giants. Now, these are the little guys in America. The one on the front of the book is um, Phidippus, one of the American jumping spiders. You have bigger ones than us, of course. They are really cute. They're the ones with the big eyes that appear to look round because they are looking round. And we have a little tiny one here called Portia. Now, you say she because the genus is Portia, even though there are obviously male spiders. But she looks like a little scrap of dust in a, a web. And they've done tests. It's on David Attenborough. There's lots of research on them. Now, this spider will... Um, under experimental conditions, they'll have the prey on one 
pedestal and the spider on another one out of reach of the jump. They'll have pathways to the prey. Those in front don't make it. The only one that does is be- goes behind the spider and round. The spider will sit there, scan the whole environment, turn round, go out of sight of the prey and follow the path round and get the prey. And they do that reliably, test after test. It's been observed in the wild, David Attenborough film, the same sort of behaviour. So this spider is scanning. They only have a four-degree range. They have to scan and then put together the image of the whole environment and analyse it. It's astounding. And then the same spider, not that I'm in love with Porsche or anything, the same spider preys on other spiders, will go to a web and jiggle the web and convince the other spider to come out, either that it's prey or a male of the same spider. So they did that experiment with our black house spiders here because they're they're out of the range of Portia and she took three days jiggling that web until she got the jiggles right to draw the spiders out and then she would use that movement from then on. How extraordinary is that? (laughs) And speaking of jumping spiders, tarantulas will jump onto people's faces, won't they? Will they? Yeah, that's what I've. That's what Matthew says. He he showed me some pictures, and he said that they're uh, they they like to climb, and that they'll they do like to climb. Yes, whether they are sort of saying that to face, let me jump. Um, they like yeah, to get they to the highest jump. point. They're not, they're not technically jumping spiders. These are right. small spiders in the family Salticidae, um, and you've got little the most gorgeous spider that I've met in the whole world is your little Phidippus audax in America, which is a common jumping spider and quite large compared to ours, small compared to the other things we're talking about, that goes around houses and appears to watch. And I had one on the window in Texas and I was taking my finger round and round. It was following it round and round and round. We're playing for ages. Um, incredible little things. Don't squish them. You certainly have a love for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I do, do think, now. Do you think that we all should have a love for spiders? Well, if you're going to be scared of spiders, it's a waste of a fear and a waste of an opportunity to really enjoy an animal in its wild condition as an individual. I don't think there's any other group of animals you can do that as reliably as spiders watching them every day with your torch, and they will do all sorts of interesting things. Um So a fear of spiders is a waste of energy, it's limiting, um, and why bother when there's this extraordinarily interesting creature right there? You don't even have to leave home. And and, and for our kid listeners, when she says torch, uh, she means flashlight here. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, it it made sense to me. (laughs) Torch is flame, is it? That's I think, right, yeah, yeah, more like a flame, oh, Olympic flame or something. <laughs> and the best flashlight to use is a strong, one of the strong um, white light ones, the ones that you can direct very strongly. And you'll see details, even during the day, I use them during the day as well as night, because you can just see so much more of the spider's little world. They're little stages that they perform on all the time. Very active little critters. I love uh, taking pictures of uh, insects and spiders. Um, you, you need to have a camera that has macro settings on it. Yeah. Really. And, and so, Although a lot of normal cameras now, I use a, a macro lens, but a lot of um, the macro settings on quite normal spider, uh, 
cameras these days do a reasonably good job. And what's really interesting to do is take a photo of the same spider web or burrow over time. So I had my fa- one of my favourite spiders, Teresa, as a wolf spider. I called her that because she was kept having lots of young Mother Teresa. But anyway, uh, and they carry them on their back. So I kept photographing Teresa's burrow every night for over a year, thousands of photos. But had I not done that, I wouldn't have realised one of her behaviours. And uh, the white-winged chuffs is a bird that um, digs up spider burrows. There will be equivalent over there. And it's the spiders. And one time I saw the chuffs were down in Teresa's garden bed and I dashed down and her burrow was all dug up. I had to wait to that night to see if she was coming out. I was terribly distressed and all that. Anyway, out came Teresa, covered in some of her babies still and a whole lot of mess, and she started to rebuild her burrow. The first thing she did was go and get this tiny little bit of curled bark that was about 10 centimetres at this stage from her burrow and bring it back and put it back. And when I went back over the photographs, that bit of bark had been there the whole time. And that night... All she did was put that one bit of bark back and then over the next week she rebuilt the whole burrow. So photographing them over time, you'll start to see all sorts of things that you just won't see otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's neat. She had it how she wanted it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. as to why, um, you know, I don't like starting anthropomorphism and sentimentality. Whether it was good at detecting things, I don't know. But she loved that bit about. Oh, I don't. You know that that's the other thing. We, I think as humans, we have a tendency to sort of uh, imagine that other creatures behave the way they do because of yeah. the same cognitive reasoning we use. Uh, but even even tiny things like ants, which use all sorts of chemical communications to control their behavior, um, if you just watch them, individual ants seem to be using all kinds of. I mean, from our perspective. It seems like they're doing rather complex things, you know. Um, Absolutely. And bees. Yeah. Amazing mm-hmm. with their little dances. Oh, yeah. With the, it really is. It really is. I mean, They are communicating. I think that we are grossly underestimating animal cognition. I mean, if spiders and bees and ants appear to be making cognitive decisions, and there's been some experiments with spiders on this, which I'll come back to in a minute, then what on earth are mammals and things doing? And how much, oh, don't get me on to cruelty to animals. Anyway, there were some experiments on the leaf-curling spiders. We have a spider here that curls up a leaf to make its home. It's an orb weaver. It then weaves an orb around it and lives in the leaf, and often male and female together, so there'll be four little legs coming out because they leave their front legs out. So they did some experiments at Melbourne University where they offered a variety of leaves for them to choose from and looked at what they chose, but then they started giving them only crummy leaves to choose from. They'd put their crummy leaf, then they'd put some good leaves down and the spiders would come down, get a good leaf and change it. And they had all sorts of experiments where they came to the conclusion these spiders were definitely making decisions. Um, It wasn't purely instinctive. And I think the more you start watching these animals, the ants, bees, spiders, uh, the cognition is not purely instinct. They are learning. Yeah, they've certainly got very complicated uh, communication systems. Yes, and we're underestimating them. The best way to see spider communication is the daddy long legs, the cellar spiders, because you can watch them for hours as the male and female twang their web and the male will move a little bit closer. 
and then suddenly he'll dash away because he said the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been there. You say the wrong thing, you get your head bit off. It's, it's all. <laughs> hey, so are we females. That's right. <laughs> well, I want to hear, uh, Blake, your anecdote. Oh, really? Well, oh, I was, there's an urban legend about um, spiders in 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 wigs, right? That uh, that yeah. the spiders can breed inside a wig. Oh, right, those sort of wigs. Yes, yeah. I thought you meant the spiders were wearing wigs. No, no, no. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> Babies, not wigs. It, it's a new form of uh, spider uh, dating techniques. Uh, so. <laughs> No, but it was funny because I actually, before I ever heard the urban legend about the spider uh, being in a wig or a wig full of spiders, um, the church that I went to as a child, the woman who sat in front of us used to wear a wig. And I didn't know that she wore a wig. But I did know that on some uh, Sunday, I noticed there were little spiders in her hair. And, (laughs) And I was behind her and I wanted to tell her. And then I, you know... I, I started to tap her. My mother stopped me from touching her. And I was like, but there's spiders in her hair. You know, and my mom, you know, says, you don't tell anybody that, you know. And so when we got a- after after church was over, my mom explained that she has a wig because she has very thin hair and she doesn't want people to know she's wearing a wig. And I was like, she had spiders in her hair. Somebody really should tell her. So I was I was caught in this sort of awkward social situation. But when I finally encountered the story about the 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 spiders popping out of the wig, I couldn't help but think, I know that lady. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well, not they like will build a... their webs anywhere that's convenient that stays still. So I yeah. guess a wig, if it's left... It's only used on Sundays, right? Yes. <laughs> but I'd want to know about that. I think it's not like you're know, having spinach in your teeth or, or something like that. I'd want to know if there was a... Yeah, yeah. Spiders on me. Uh, as an adult, without my mother around to stop me, I'm pretty sure I would have still told her. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's how make I turned you out. Go back and remedy that that um, event and oh, to make it, it, the right list again. Of, the list of things I should make right if I had a time Ease machine. Or yeah. guilt. <laughs> if you had your druthers. Oh my gosh! Is that uh, an expression in America too? Having your druthers. We I've say doctor other. No, I don't know. No, <laughs> I have heard it here. Yeah. Yes, oh, right. I've heard it here. I still don't know what it means. Uh, I mean, I know what it means. Again. <laughs> but I don't know what druthers. I'd are. rather yeah. my I'd rather's. Is are you serious? Is that what it means? Yeah, it comes I from I'd rather because everybody blurs what they say. Okay, I didn't know that. Hmm. It's like uh, it's like blimey, right? It's like it's short for God blind me if I'm blind, right? Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. A euphemism. Never worked. Yeah. <laughs> Blasphemy. But, Lynn, we always like to ask our guests on the show. It's our final question. Uh, what's your favourite monster? Oh, definitely the little wrens. Horrible creatures. <laughs> but they can be made to look sweet. We have not heard that not one before. not a spider. <laughs> That's a brand well, new That product. is absolutely, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> I actually love them. <laughs> That's Except fantastic. when I'm being a spider. Oh, so we'll, we'll put a link to your books in the show notes. Um, Thank you very much. No problem. And and so what I think the in addition to the spider books, I think our listeners would probably be interested in your book, The Skeptic's Guide to the Paranormal. Um, I don't know if how easy that is to, to round up because I think it's from like 2003 or four or something. Isn't it? uh, it's still on Amazon. It's still, still on still Amazon. About... Well, there you go. Oh, so. yes. No problem. Yeah, it's quite good. It's got It covers a lot of material. So it, It's beginner's entry-level skepticism. Just like this show. 
<laughs> Lynn does a fantastic uh, 101 skepticism talk. So Great. she's been out to the States before and given that talk. And uh, she, you've given that talk to skeptics and to clergymen. and yeah. Oh, yes, all sorts. It's basically science and the paranormal with some magic thrown in and gee whiz stuff. Yeah, it's good fun. And full of spiders. <laughs> If you yeah. want. <laughs> Not usually, but I can bring them into almost any topic. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And today you heard me and Dr. Karen Stolzno interview author Lynn Kelly about her transition from a fear of spiders to an absorbing fascination with them. H.P. Lovecraft wrote that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. If that's true, then perhaps Lynn's on the right track in believing that knowledge about the thing you fear is a great tool in overcoming such fear. Links to Lynn's books and to Karen's new book are in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. In fact, maybe they hate spiders. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. subscribe to skeptic magazine digitally just grab our free skeptic magazine app currently compatible with ios android pc mac kindle fire kindle fire hd and blackberry playbook head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite skeptic content he is our hero get rid of step on spider love you, spider. Oh.